I want to win again for sure, but like my next goal is, is Bathurst. Now that uh, emphasis on that raises and I need to try and get that done. When I first took over the team at the end of 2012, beginning of 2013, uh, weren't especially rosy, but we managed to win a, a race with Chaz Mostert that year in, in July and I thought, gee, this caper's bloody easy. Hey, I'm David Reynolds from Penrite Racing and this is Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Supercars. This week we'll be talking with Gil Slade, continuing on our Father's series. I hope you had a great Christmas. Craig Ravel caught up with Gil Slade to hear how he was able to turn Tim's racing career, get him into the main game seat. With Tim's future in the up in the air still, it's a fascinating story. Later we hear from an engineer who had a very rare experience, a year off. Phil returns to the championship this year with Team 18, and he found out, we find out about the year and his viewing of the championship in 2019. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Still a bit in shock. Uh, thanks, thanks everyone. Dissecting the sport with interviews, news and opinion. Got to put money back into the sport at the lower levels to develop the kids and bring them up. You can't rely upon good luck. For Daniel Ricardo's old man to have found a few mates to tip some money in and send him overseas, there actually needs to be Eastside a structure. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Hi, I'm Jack LeBrock from Truck Assist Techno Racing. Welcome to Inside Supercars. Well, as we continue our talk with fathers of drivers, Gil Slade joins us this week. And Gil, how did you get involved in motorsport? I got involved in motorsport actually when I was about 14. Um, we just had a local car club in the country town we lived in in New South Wales at Barradine. And uh, we used to get, we got the old farm mute out and... Uh, yeah, did a few motor carnets and stuff like that. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I guess I didn't do much more until I was probably uh, 10 years older than that and uh, living in Sydney. And I think, what was the first car? I think the first car I had that was kind of a race, proper race car was a Formula V, which I used to run at Amaru and Oran Park. Uh, I then got into Group E, ran uh, various cars, Commodore and uh, Cordia Turbo, actually raced with Brad and in the Cordia Turbo in, in Group E back, back in the day. So yeah, that's how, that's how I got started and then I guess later on moved back to South Australia and got involved with uh, rallying, did a, did a fair bit of rallying and um, then one day um, bought a, or actually, yeah, come and try day it was at Bolivar and uh, took Tim out there. And we jumped in a couple of go-karts and said, this is a lot of fun. So went and bought just two old dunga go-karts and uh, one for him, one for me. And I thought this would be a good thing father and son could do. And uh, mine never got raced. <laughs> that was the end of the story. <laughs> so you a mechanical background or what, what got you tinkering with the cars in the first place? Yeah, mechanical background. I mean, my dad was... Um, a car dealer in the day, uh, Vanguards and Ferguson tractors, and after like he won a soldier settlement block after the war, and we moved to the land. So I guess you know, living on a farm, you've always got to fix your own stuff. And I remember as a kid, I was only thinking about it the other day. I remember as a kid because my dad passed away quite young. I was only eight when he died, and 
I remember as a kid, if I got bored, I'd just walk, walk out the, you know, I'd go out and jump on the Ferguson tractor and take it to the shed and start pulling it apart. And I used to see how far I could go before I stuffed something and couldn't fix it up. So then I'd put it all back together and thought, that, you know, that wasted a couple of hours or something. Then I'd put a, you know, put a plough on it and go and plough some more, an orchard or something like that. I'd just, yeah, go and grade the road to the house and, yeah, just muck around generally, um, yeah, as you do as a, as a kid with... With, you know, without that parental influence, I guess I, I just did what I liked. But um, it, it made it it made it quite hard actually because I didn't have a father and I didn't have his his influence. I knew he loved cars. He was probably I think Mum didn't allow him to go on the fifty four Red X trial because I was being born. So he had a, a great interest in cars and that flowed onto me obviously. But I, I kind of always. I always regretted those those early days when I was a kid and he wasn't around because I'm sure we would have got stuck into something a lot more seriously, a lot younger. And I remember I wanted to buy a Formula V when I was about 18 and my mum said, if you buy a Formula V, I'll disinherit you. So that kind of, that put me off for a little while, but not long. Uh, so um, that that's, yeah, that's, uh, I guess, the background to that, living on a farm and, and just tinkering with stuff and learning about it. So what eventually funded your motor racing program? My motor racing program, actually, when I look back at it, when I was running Group E, you know, it's, it's very interesting when you look back at it, I kind of um, did a lot of... I sold panels on the car, you know, to different people. And it, cause it didn't cost a lot of money. I think it was costing, you know, around about a 1000 bucks a race meeting. Um, so I just, yeah, I just sold panels on the car for varying amounts of money and all my mates jumped in and, you know, it's not really crowdfunding, but kind of like crowdfunding and I know our first Formula Ford for Tim, I basically crowdfunded that, um, just went to a heap of people, we needed 15 grand and I went to a heap of people and you know, we had uh, probably half of it or whatever and I got the other half just off friends, I just, you know, businessmen and that I knew, I knew they could probably spare a thousand bucks and I uh, you know, went to them and said look, how about you buy a share in this car, at the end of the day when we sell it we'll pay the, pay the money back. and. Um, at the end of the day when we did sell it and we moved on and I went back to every one of those people and said, well, look, I've got the money to give back to you. And they said, no, nah, just put it into the next venture. So every 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 person, you know, I think, yeah, thought the thousand, they'd never see the thousand again anyway. And, and when I went to give it back, they said, no, nah, just keep it and put it into the next venture, which we did. So that that was um, one of the early ways. And it's funny, I watch people these days saying, you know, they need money to go motor racing and they're sending out proposals and stuff like that. And to be honest, it doesn't work. You know, we tried all that stuff. Tim used to walk up and down the street of up Main Street, McLarenville, and go to every business with a proposal. And I don't think he got diddly squat, even even in the go kart days. But I just thought I've got to think of a smart way to, to make some cash and, and make it quickly, and and so we can pour it into a car without giving away my main source of income, my main job. So I, um, yeah, I. I lived in wine area and there was lots of wine barrels around the place and I know um, you know the local department of the local um, might attend used to you know, buy them buy them and you know sell them and make good money and I thought well if you could stick them on a truck and take them somewhere to where there isn't any wine barrels I reckon you get a lot more so basically my first trip was to Western Australia with a three-ton truck and a heap of barrels on it um, made a bit of money out of that and uh, came back and thought well okay we've got to make a make turn this into a bigger operation so I went out and bought a, an old semi-trailer and those days you know any semi-trailer was pretty expensive they're reasonably cheap now but bought an old Mercedes-Benz brought it back to the shed restored the restored it totally restored the the uh, truck you know cut all the rust out of it repainted it did everything like that and um, 
built big high sides on the trailer, filled up with wine barrels, and off I went. And uh, I was I, I, my initial thoughts were to go to uh, to um, nurseries and stuff and sell them off, which I I did. But then a mate of mine said, "Oh, I just sit in the side of the road and sell them. That's what people in the tropics do." So. I did that in uh, Darwin and suddenly found out that, that that was the way to go. So every month or so I'd just load the truck up and disappear and I didn't was never on the road for more than about 10 days. I'd sell a whole truckload of barrels and make a heap of money and that was our budget for probably at least three years that I can, you know, that I can remember. But uh, yeah, so you, you've just got to, you know, I always say if you, if you can't afford to do something, just dream up a way that you, know, that you can afford it. Think of a way that you can afford it. So that's what you've got to do. So you mentioned you bought two carts. Was Tim, he just jumped in it and showed an ability or a skill, or did, did it take a couple of years before that came through? Um, I'm no, no big believer in, in natural talent, I've got to tell you. Um, you know, there's some guys around that, that do really well, but you look into their background and they've probably practised bloody hard and done a lot of, lot of work over the years. So... Uh, the funny thing was the go-kart he had that I bought him wasn't really you know, a good go-kart and I said to him, you know, thinking, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll give him something to aim for but at the same time I'll try and save myself some money. So I said to him, whenever, you know, if you can get that cart going quick enough to put it on the podium, I'll buy you a new one. And I think it was the third race meeting up in the Pines track in, uh, up in the Adelaide Hills and um, it pissed down rain and... Uh, I think we were on a tenth at the time, pissed down rain, and uh, seven people fell off the track. So I was stuffed after the third meeting. I had to go and buy a new go-kart. Um, and then we just, you know, it's funny, like we, and I, again, I see people making this mistake. We, you know, did pretty well in South Australia, as you do, you know, after 12 months in midgets and that, you start to win races. And it's just a matter of, you know, the, the good guys go up to, to a more senior class and you end up winning your class. But rather than just sit... You know, in South Australia, taking home trophies, I was always a great believer in going and finding the best competition that you could for that age group and then having a crack at them. So we used to travel to New South Wales a lot and, and race there because they were still kind of under the old, you know, kind of, it wasn't still camps, but they were pretty good uh, contestants and there wasn't any so much cheating or, or you know, bad sportsmanship going on there. So it was real close, hard racing. Um, you know, it was the days when Winterbottom and... Uh, guys like that were growing up and so we went over there and raced a lot we did a lot of country series stuff because it was just a little bit closer and then I got him into CIK karting so um, that that in itself is kind of I always said about CIK karting that it was 90% of what you learned in go-karting if you learned if you thought you learned a bit when you were just doing club karting when you did you know, you know CIK you'd probably learned another 90% and, and I think Tim will even say to this day that, and, and all the top drivers in V8s have done that, they did that form of CIK karting and it really taught you a lot about tyre conservation and conserving a vehicle and, and, and getting it to work properly. And um, yeah, I guess that's, you know, that's where that ended up. But so it wasn't a matter of, you know, of course, if you do something for long enough, if, if you don't do any good at it, then you need to get out of it. But it's just a matter of, um, you know, hanging in there long enough to, to try and, and I guess I, what I tried to do was teach him on the way through all the stuff that I'd learned and, and one, of, one of those things was not to waste money on just buying the latest and greatest of anything. We used to flog people in stuff that was you know, years and years old. I think our, our CIK cart that we won a lot of championships in was probably by you know, a year or two older than anybody else's in the field 
wasn't the latest and greatest, but it worked for us, and we learned how to make that cart work. And you know, every time, every now and again, we go to a meeting and we'd be handed a new cart frame to try, and we just could never, never make them work. So we always went back to the old one. And um, so, I think I think a good driver is a driver that can drive a shitbox fast. And and there's a lot of people around that have the latest and best equipment, and they can drive that fast. But as soon as there's something wrong with it, they don't know what to do. So. I'm a great believer in, in being able to drive, you know, something that's not quite up to standard. But if you can drive that fast, then you, when you get into a good one, you can drive that even faster. So, um, yeah, I just always we always spend our mon- money wisely. We, you know, we spent plenty of it, but spend our money wisely, and that's that's what we did. My knowledge of Tim's background is you never were a, an arrive and drive. He was never an arrive and drive. It was always you took the slade built and prepared race car to the track and then did that as a family and that is a lot different to a lot of the uh, lot of the guys who's racing here in supercars who would turn up with a helmet and driving suit and then go racing yeah you're right I mean uh, we did that kind of twice um, where the you know we bought a rotten island this old 15 a thousand dollar formula Ford just and I only bought it just for him to learn to drive a, a manual car on a track basically and we bought it out of uh, Victoria um, and, and it was a it was a ninety one Van Diemen I think so it was an old ninety two was a monoshock front end. Everyone else had like it was ten years old. Everyone else had you know um, a ten year old ten yeah ten years newer car. And we just learned how to make that go as quick as we could. And again the same as what I was saying before. Um, I think we got down to within about seven, uh, nine, nine tenths or seven tenths of the front guys, and it was good enough to put us easily in the top ten. Of and we did a national championship in that car that year. We actually only bought it to do a bit of Vic, Vic State Series or something. But the first round was a national round, and I don't know we finished up fifteenth or something like that. And, and you know, with a ten-year-old car and everyone else had brand new stuff, I thought, well, that's not bad. Let's keep going. So we did that year. Uh, I think we missed one or two rounds. Just we couldn't afford or didn't have the time to do it. But um, yeah, that, that kind of I guess it was just a follow-on from the from the go karts, and then when we got into uh, uh, V8s, we also did the same thing with James Rosenberg when James bought us a car, uh, bought us a Perkins car, and I look back at that and it's just amazing here because um, you know Tim actually Tim actually mechanic he was the mechanic on the car and the driver so. In the off periods, he was working on the car at Larry's workshop, and anything he couldn't do on the car himself, I think Larry, um, you know, did him a lot of favours by, you know, helping him out. Well, Tim would, you know, would do what he could for Larry, and Larry could, you know, did what he could for Tim. So Tim would be sweeping the floors, and Larry would be fixing the motor or something. So um, that that was, yeah, that was, yeah, asked to a T, I guess, and. Yeah, we never had the best transport or anything like that. But you don't, you know, as long as the car gets the track, it doesn't. The car doesn't know any difference to what transporter it's in. And I can, one thing I remember is driving away from Wakefield Park after winning the winning the round, and we're in the. I had a, I had a reasonably new. Oh, I think I was still on the old old truck, but we just had a gooseneck on the back of it. You know, it wasn't a it wasn't a proper transporter, and we drove out with a with a trophy sitting on the dash, and I'm driving past all the you know all the main game. Um, transporters sitting there and I thought well we've achieved a fair bit here because we're, we're the worst looking rig in the whole field and we've, we've gone and won a race so and that you know Larry's car was a good car but you know it wasn't the most you know I found out later and Tim never let me know but I found out later we were about I think 40 or 60 horsepower below everyone else and he wouldn't tell me that we were 
down on horseback because he knew I'd just make some. I'd just invent a way to go and spend the ten grand we needed to spend to get that horsepower. So, but yeah, to his credit, he never ever told me that we were down on horsepower. So, um, but there again, he learned how to drive a car that was down on horsepower, and we got a good result that year. I think we finished fifth or something like that. So, and I think that's what people could see. I remember Tim telling a sponsor once that he'd be happy to. Um, He'd be happy to live in a caravan and drive a Datsun 180B if it meant he could go motor racing. So you're selling wine barrels to fund the motor racing program. What are you doing for feeding the family? Uh, I, st- I still had a, uh, I still had a, like a, a standalone business. It was lucky enough that I could walk away from that business, have people run it. So I was doing, uh, I had a car yard. So you know, the whole car thing was always you know in our blood. And uh, yeah, I had a car yard, so I had guys that I could trust and, and leave in charge of that. And I was able to go away and, and, and do the other. So I think the key to all that's just being self-employed and setting yourself up so that you can walk away and, and do stuff. And, and you know, they knew what I was doing, so I guess they worked that or tried that a little bit harder too. To do well, it was probably obvious that you were never going to be able to do the Slade Speedway to get to the main, or to be in the main game. But an interesting story was that at the presentation night when I think he had won the Young Guns Award or uh, he made a presentation and the story that I've been told and has been verified was Paul Morris had another driver lined up for the car the following year and when Tim got up there to speak and talked about trailing his own car and working on his own car, Paul dropped the driver he had and started speaking to you um yeah actually that's the story i didn't i didn't i had no idea about that so um yeah that's yeah amazing story i know that paul's got a lot of uh a lot of respect in that for tim and um yeah i mean good on him paul's the kind of, i've got a lot of respect for paul i've got to know him over the years and the guy has a genuine love of the sport and he Paul's got a talent that I don't see many people have. When I saw him as a, uh, a team manager, um, he's got a, a talent to be able to do some, some bloody good things. You know, I remember some of the um, results we got when we raced with him were, were brilliant results because Paul, Paul's just got an ability to be able to you know, um, get, a, I don't know, um, get a car into the pits at the right time get changes made, do whatever you have to do and get back out. I mean, that, that came to the fore when he won Bathurst from, from dead motherless last, you know, and that's that was Paul's bloody own brilliance when he just, uh, what did they do, 20-odd pit stops or something like that, and and, and still won Bathurst and by, did not have the fastest combination by any any means. So, um, yeah, he's still doing it today. He's still mentoring young lads and yeah, he, knows, he knows, I think with Paul, he just knows a genuine person who's, who's like I said that that whole thing of not caring about anything else but motor racing and and that's the kind of stuff that Paul can uh, look at um, so yeah I didn't I didn't know that didn't I did that's the first time I've heard that story so yeah amazing amazing story when you look back and it was just but it was funny because we were, we were just doing it because that's what we did you know we weren't doing it I didn't I, Jesus I never even dreamed we did end up in a Formula Ford let alone in the main game for 10 years as it's been so uh yeah, that's that's the way we did it. Just just chip away at it and do the best you can with what you've got. Once your son has got to the main game, you've been completely, you know, involved in that whole lifestyle, that whole 
that whole journey. How does the journey change when you're no longer such a linchpin in it or do you not feel it changed at all? It was really funny when he went to main game because it was so hard for me to go. And I see it with fathers too that I see all the time. It was really, really hard to go to a race meeting and not be involved and just not do anything. And, I mean, I didn't even sign checks anymore. So that was, that was the best part. But, yeah, it was like a new, yeah, totally new thing. I didn't know, I didn't know my boundaries. I didn't know whether I was supposed to, whether I could walk in the pits or not. And it depends what team you're in too as to how you get treated in that area. But... It was really, really hard to actually be able to go and sit in the crowd. And I'll, I'll never forget, like, it was really hard. And, yeah, I'd have a lot of mates going to meetings and stuff like that. We'd get together. It was really hard actually having a beer while the race meeting was on. That was that was the hardest thing because I just I just couldn't, you know, because before we'd never have a beer at a race meeting because we'd be working on the car or whatever. So, yeah, it was really hard to get to that level where I relaxed and have a beer. Um, it didn't take long, I must admit. <laughs> So now, yeah, now, now to me it's a bit of a social event, really. Just, yeah, I really actually I only go to race meetings now if I've got a couple of mates going because if I go on my own, I just get bored shirtless, you know. But yeah, luckily enough, I've obviously over the years built up a, quite a few relationships. So yeah, I just ring around if there's no one going to a particular meeting, I probably don't have much interest in going because uh, yeah, you are, yeah, it's very hard to step out of the frame and uh, and and not, and you got to treat it like a workplace. You just treat it. Now, I don't like, everyone says, oh, do you go and hang around the pits and all that kind of stuff? And the other thing everyone thinks is that you've got a bloody corporate pass, which is, a lot, you know, occasionally you do get one because one of the one of the sponsors, you know, you get to know them or whatever, they'll give you a corporate pass. But, um, yeah, you just, yeah, you just, I guess, uh, yeah, you just got to get used to going as a spectator. And, and to that end, I've now gone, gone full circle. I've now gone back to getting my own car and doing some racing myself. And that, I've just really enjoyed that because it's taken me back to that, you know, it's, Morris said, you know, back to the grassroots and, and just having some fun and it's been so much fun and then lo and behold Tim come and race the car a couple of months ago and that was yeah that was just weird to like it was 10 years it was 10 years since we sat in the car together and gone to a race meeting and I picked him up at the airport and we sat in the car and went to Tarlin Bend and did a race meeting it was just yeah so much fun and I'd forgotten the intensity that he has because I thought, oh, we'll, you know, we'll just go to the race meeting and do the normal changes. Well, God, we were doing four or five changes every time we went out. And he was whinging about this, complaining about that, and we tried to do this. And it was like, anyway, we got a good result in the end, actually. For the, for, I think the car ended up where it should have been, and, yeah, we were pretty happy. We were really, I was just over the moon when he put it on pole in the wet. That was great because the wet's obviously a great leveller. And, uh, yeah, like he was a second clear of the next guy and three and a half seconds clear of the guy behind that. So, um, yeah, I was, I, was, I was really stoked with that. And I thought, geez, we're, we're up there. Because we were practising the day before and we were a fair bit off the pace. It was good. Why did you buy that car? What was the impetus? <laughs> that was, that's a funny story how I got into XL racing. A friend of mine had been racing and I'd been helping him out. We've been getting pretty good results. <clears throat> anyway, I was at Winton with another friend of mine, and uh, Tim won those two races at Winton, so we were pretty happy after that, and we got back to the airport, and we were sitting in the airport having a beer, and I rang my mate in Adelaide who'd been racing that weekend, he'd been racing his XL, and I said, oh, how'd you go? And he said, mate, I've, I've tipped it upside down, I've destroyed it. So, so geez, that's no good. So we're sitting there, and I noticed another car, a good car, come up on Facebook for sale. So I rang the guy and said, mate, we'll take it, thinking that John was going to take the car. 
so to replace his so anyway i rang john back and i said mate i found you another car you know i just jumped on this car because i know it's a good one we should jump on it and he said mate i haven't got any money so i went oh jesus what am i going to do now because i promised this guy i'll buy it so my mate opposite said why don't we buy it we'll go halves in it and we'll race it i said yeah why not because we're feeling pretty happy and um that's how it started so <clears throat> that car um yeah i don't know it had a bit of a curse on it between him and I, I think we had everything by the bloody yeah, starting grid, but it was uh, it was a good car. It gave us some results, um, and the last hit I had, and it was pretty big, so it's still lying in the shed in need of repair. And uh, but I had in the back of mind, I wanted to build a car my way, you know. So I wanted to build a car as yeah, you know, as things change in categories, and there's better and better ways to build a car. So I uh, yeah decided to uh, throw to get an, together another one and, and try and poke as many good bits as it as. It, at it as I could afford, and um, so yeah, I've ended up with a second car, and I um, yeah crossed a few things off the bucket list with that this year. I ran at Bathurst, so it was yeah, it was just I'd, I'd never driven there obviously, and that was that was a huge thrill. Didn't get a very good result, be- just because of the way things were, and I didn't really didn't really go out there to you know prove anything. I just wanted to drive around the joint and have a good look at it. So. That was a lot of fun. It's, it's pretty hard getting a clear lap in an XL with 55 cars on the grid. So after I realised that, I went, nah, it's not going to happen. So just just play follow the leader and yeah, pass pass all the ones you can on the straight because it's too dangerous up around the top. Um, and then uh, Winton announced they're going to run XLs at the V8 round. So I went, wow, how good's this? Let's do this as well. So I did that meeting and that's when Tim watched me in the car in the last race and really only got on the pace in the last race. I think I passed... I don't know, 11 or 15 cars or something stupid. And um, yeah, I, I couldn't get him off the phone. He was messaging me and, oh, what did you do and how'd you do this? And rah, rah, rah. And, and um, I said, do you want to go for a skid in? And he goes, shit, yeah, let's do it. So that's how the how the bend came up. And uh, yeah, it was good. Good fun. Now, Tim's not your only child. Yep. So how do you balance up a father with his son that's racing? And then I know you have a daughter. How do you balance up the uh, the time spent yeah well that, that was always a bone of contention with my daughter and if she hears it she'll only bloody rub it in some more but um, Lucy's probably got as much determination as Tim to make it in her given field which is journalism she's within two years of leaving university she's now um, doing um, you know, live television for wind, wind television in, uh, in um, Townsville and yeah, I mean, she didn't get a lot of attention when she was younger, and I look, I was always trying, you know, always going to netball and stuff like that for her. Um, but bloody Philip Island was always on the weekend of the grand final, and she won about six in a row or something. So yeah, I was never the best father in that respect, but she understands and respects that, I think. And it, look, I would never have been able to afford to put her through. Um, through go-karts or anything like that anyway because the money I spent and getting Tim where he was, you know, things were always pretty close to the bone for a fair while. It's only recently that I've really been able to, you know, get back on top of things. So um, she, yeah, she always used to say to me, um, like, you know, if you don't pay more attention, I'll, I'll go and buy a horse. And everyone knows horses are bloody more expensive than motor races, so that really scared me a lot. So I was always as good as I could be to her. <laughs> Did she ever say she wanted to race, though? She has said that she wanted to race, yes. 
Um, and I, just, I don't know what to say now because you got me in a corner. But um, I guess she she always said she would wanted to race. Um, but at, but at the end of the day, Tim showed, and the thing that I knew Tim, Tim wanted to race, and I, it stands out clear, clearly in my mind. It was back in the days when Alan Jones was running Formula One. I reckon Tim was two years old, and I got up in the middle of the night to watch Grand Prix, and I was just sitting on the couch, and then I like scared the living daylights out because I didn't realise he'd got out of bed and he was sitting next to me. I was obviously absorbed in the TV or whatever, and I just looked around and almost scared myself and I go, oh shit, he's sitting there next to me watching television. So he's got himself out of bed at two years old because he's heard the television on, realised it was Formula One, and he's down watching Formula One, watching Alan Jones race Formula One. So that's kind of when I knew that he had. Yeah, that he wanted to do it. Yeah, and now I used to take him out. Those days we lived in Sydney. I used to take him out to Amaru and that a lot. And he just, yeah, he just loved the cars. Absolutely loved them. So I was running the Formula V and stuff in those days. And yeah, he used to love coming out, and watching me race, and, and doing all that stuff even at that young age. Well, Gil, it's been a pleasure to catch up with you and find out more about you. And we hope that you get to enjoy a, a few more successful days at the back of the uh, the BGR garage for years to come. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, just, it's just an evolving thing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I want to do a bit more racing. I think Tim and I may do the Winton Enduro together. Um, I noticed, I talked to Stevie Johnson today. I think he's doing it with Jet. And here's, here's a shout-out to Paul Morris. Mate, the pressure's on you. I uh, want to see you and your young fella at, at Winton. I reckon we'll have a bloody, we'll have a Father's Cup. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah, I do, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it as long as I still feel competitive. I've I've said a bit of a if I if I can't make top 15 in a 35 car field, I'm figured I'm gonna put a young kid in the car. So I'll do it for as long as I can. But I I, I actually enjoy I enjoy the same thing with Tim. But I enjoy racing. To me, is fun. But I just get as much enjoyment out of out of preparing a car and having someone else race it. I got just as much enjoyment out of watching Tim at Thailand Bend than I would have. Probably more enjoyment than if I rode drove it myself. So yeah, it's just that, that you know succeeding in something, like building a car. I built that whole, whole car by from scratch by hand, and then Tim went out and you know got third in it at Thailand Bend, and I reckon that was I don't think that was as best that car would ever do. So uh, and and pulled it in the wet. So. Yeah, I get as much enjoyment out of that, so in the future, I, when I give up racing myself, I'll probably just put a young lad in the car and still be travelling around doing what I do now, and, and I'll, yeah, I, I, I don't want to I don't want to die in a bed, <laughs> or die on the road somewhere, pass out in the back seat, going to a race meeting. <laughs> Thank you. After the break, Phil Keed on Inside Supercars. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. This year in Formula 3, I think, is a fantastic environment for me to be doing that. However, I believe for myself, uh, a sustainable career in tin tops such as Fiat Supercars in Australia is where I see myself. Second crack at the Australian time since we've been back and a bit unlucky the first time that we end up with a win there at Speedway City uh, two weeks ago. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Join in the conversation, post your thoughts on our Facebook page and to ask a question, email insiders at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm Tony Delberto from Shell V-Power Racing. Welcome to Inside Supercars. Well, Phil Keed, it's been a year back in the game. How have you enjoyed this year back at Irwin Tools? Yeah, I've really enjoyed it, actually. It's been, it's been a tremendous year, really... Uh, 
lots of learning and lots of growing as uh, as a team, um, which I which I really enjoy. Uh, it's great being back in supercars. Wouldn't say I missed it for the year, but I am actually enjoying it now that I'm back. You've had a very unique opportunity, isn't it? A year where you just had no motor racing, yeah? a year to reflect on family and friends. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, that was um, you know, probably one of, the, one of those years you look back as, as one of the best things you've ever done. So I was very, very fortunate um, and uh, you know, grabbed it with both hands. It was, it was excellent. Coming to a one-car team, I, I'm thinking back in your timeline, I can't remember you working in a team this small. No, although I'd say PWR Racing in 03 and 04 was this small, actually for two cars, but it was a really complete customer operation. Um, so a little bit different in that way, but yeah, certainly the, the one car, um, it's uh, probably the smallest operation we're involved in. And you, you've come back into a different role. You're not the race engineer, you're overseeing the engineering. Yeah, absolutely. Which is it's a new challenge for me in recent times and, I, and I'm really enjoying it uh, and uh, you know it's but it's it's quite a lot of learning what I've enjoyed I, I spoke to JJ Jeremy Moore this weekend and I've uh, previously spoken to people like Lena Gay and it's fascinating because they've spent all their life looking at engineering and fixing problems and as they move up it's less about fixing the uh, intricacies and more about dealing with all the people is that something that's coming naturally to you um yes and no i think for me it's i've i've always enjoyed the the detail technical stuff i really i just enjoy it and i like being very close to everything so for for me it's actually coming you know it's something i'm i'm working hard at but uh, i wouldn't i wouldn't say you know you you have to practice these things what about the role this year and knowing what it's going to turn into next year where you do go back to a two-car team what have you got out of this year that's preparing you for that yeah i mean i feel like every uh every every race weekend feels like a lot of firsts for us um you generally find with a new new group or even a group that's reasonably established you, you you can't really just patch in do it this way and everything will be fine you have to learn and you have to processes have to sort of be evolved and and you need to own them everybody needs to to buy into that so it feels for us like every 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 round's been a a a new lesson somewhere um and it doesn't sometimes feel like you've achieved a lot but i think looking back we've we've put a lot of groundwork in so next year i think we'll um we'll be able to sort of reap the rewards from that a lot more what's the mousetrap like You've worked with a, a lot of different cars. What's the triple eight ZB Commodore like compared to those other ones? The the Penske FGX, the um, what was it? Walk, uh, Brad Jones? He was doing his own deal down there for years, and then of course all those years at Tickford. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a it's a it's a good mousetrap. It's I mean, so often with these things, the simplicity is what makes it good. You know, if you can be fast and simple, that's the that's the biggest thing. So, um, you know, the the biggest thing always is they they know their kit and um, and the people they understand the car. So they they do a fantastic job running the car, and I I think it's a good mousetrap. But we haven't learnt to run it properly yet. When 
certainly when you're at Tickford and uh, you would build the next car and all those little things that you know it just I couldn't quite reach that or the mechanics couldn't quite get at that um, get at that bolt you adjust it and you fix it on the jig how does it go when you're about to bring another car in there's some things that you might like can you get those changes done off the assembly line if you like to, to be honest this whole year I mean we were very fortunate the cars sorted and, and for most part Frosty can jump in and drive it as the triple eight guys have it so uh and i think it'll probably have to be similar for for scotty because this whole year we've really spent a lot more things on process and other things i've got a list we've got a list as long as there are of, of things we want to get going uh we haven't done many of them and i don't see a lot happening over christmas it's such a short turnaround with once everyone has a holiday so the list is quite long but it's they're not immediate things and it's still process we're working on You've led me into how much do you know about Scott Pye? Oh, quite a bit. Uh, I was fortunate to work alongside him in 16 at DJRTP when I ran FAB. And um, so, you know, saw, saw how he operates. That was a difficult year for all of us and both drivers. But um, there, were, there were some really good signs and, and uh, I was excited about how he drives. I think his driving style... Uh, doesn't necessarily complement Frosty, but that's a good thing because you, you kind of want two guys that are a little bit different in how they approach things, how the teams they've run at, and the type of cars they've driven. So I think I think it's going to be. Um, I'm really excited. I think it'll bring a lot in terms of different approaches, different styles. I know how much you love your white, and particularly you'd love another white Christmas, but it doesn't sound like it's coming your way this year. No, no, no. It's, uh, yeah, I think it was about minus 25 at this time last year when we were in Canada and, and snowy. So, um, no, no, we're sort of sweltering away up in Queensland. Have a great Christmas and look forward to seeing you in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. No, thanks a lot. It's been good to, uh, good to chat. Next week, we continue the Father Series on Inside Supercars with Cam Water's father, Chris. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next week for more at sportradio.com.au or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars.